So hello and welcome to the Dr. Richard podcast, a show about health, well-being, fitness and humanity. I'm Dr. Richard Marks. Today I'm excited to welcome Julie Camisetto. Julie is an IT consultant and an executive and business coach. So how are you? And tell me three things that make you smile. Hi, Richard. Um, I am good. Um, three things that make me smile. When it's a sunny day in London, the spring has arrived and people are smiling. <laughs> That's rare. <laughs> but at least we get part of the year. <laughs> it happens once in May and once start of September, usually. But That's very nice. Um, my cats, when they do silly things. And my friends, I'm very grateful to have them around me. Yeah. And they do say, you know, friends are the family you choose and that network that you build. They are, especially if you're uh, an expat and you live abroad and you have to rebuild a life abroad, your friends become your chosen family. Totally. So tell me, what was it like growing up in France and how was that experience of kind of coming to a new country and rebuilding your life as an expat? How did you find that? Growing up in France... The bread was amazing. <laughs> the best. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Marseille, so I grew up on the coast uh, by the sea, and it was very sunny. And my family is originally from the south of Italy, so I had a very strong Mediterranean culture um, in my family. And growing up in France as well, I appreciate, or I came to appreciate the education we, we receive. Um, we have philosophy at school mm. um, and there is a teaching about how to, to think for yourself, mm. which I, I've been appreciating a lot throughout my life and I've, uh, I've learned to appreciate. Yeah, I think in French, you know, in France as well, they obviously there's those amazing philosophers and they spend a lot of time thinking and self-reflecting and reflecting on life and on their thoughts and on themselves. So that's one of the good things, you know, and obviously like the cafe culture that came out of that. It is, and I remember as a student, I was I was studying English at uni for two years in Aix-en-Provence near Marseille. Wow. And we used to go to lessons to class and coming out, we used to go to a, a very small cafe at the corner um, down the street and we used to debate on what was going on in politics, the latest <laughs> news, but we were like 18, 19 years old. <laughs> but that's kind of encouraged, isn't it? Yeah. To have your thoughts and have your opinions and... I think that's great in a world where, you know, now things are so homogenized and maybe people are afraid to have opinions or thoughts, you know. So I think independent thinking is important. It is. Yes, absolutely. I was going to talk about how we know each other and obviously we've become friends and we know each other for quite a long time now. And obviously I've seen you as a patient for your teeth as well. You saved me yeah. with my teeth. <laughs> thank you, hard. thank you. I hope so. <laughs> so um, tell me about what made you decide on embarking on um, executive and business coaching. Um, I know, obviously, that you kind of did IT consulting and mm -hmm. you had many skills um, before that, but what made you think specifically about going into coaching and what does that entail? I worked in IT for over 20 years now. And as I progressed throughout my career, 
I ended up working on a lot of um, transformation projects and that involved working with leadership teams a lot and um, senior managers. And when I was applying the tools I had that were coming purely from the IT side and the consulting side, I started noticing that there was something missing. Um, I didn't have anything that could allow me to create a deeper connection and to really work with these senior managers. And it's quite lonely um, up there in organization. Yeah, of course. They are quite lonely. Especially because in a way you're coming in as an outsider, being a consultant, you know, you're not necessarily in-house in the system and you're coming in maybe to make change and people are maybe resistant to change. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, I, I saw, I noticed that a lot of those managers didn't necessarily have anybody to talk to. Mm. Um, and very often because of the pressure that they had to make decisions, the mind was trapped into a certain way of doing things. And I had no way to actually talk with them, talk this out and make them aware of the thinking process and help this way to unblock things and to get on with whatever goals they had in the career. So um, that was one of the one of the reasons why I decided to, to then go so and become a coach. I have a question. What makes a good manager? And do you think anybody can be a manager or do you think some people are more cut out for it than other people and some people could never really have management skills or can anybody be taught you know how to manage people some people are not interested in being managers um it's different from the question whether they can be managers or not i think everyone can um people say that leadership skills are the most important in management I think leadership skills are everywhere at every single level of the company, starting with the individual and how you manage your life and yourself. Um, but yes, I think... And what makes a good leader? The ability to adapt the leadership style, depending on the situation, to motivate people, to support them, to sometimes um, take control a little bit more when you feel there is a need for it. This ability to be flexible and to really connect and appreciate um, what the people in your teams are doing makes makes a really good manager. And I think also they talk a lot about problem solving and, you know, how to... And I'm always thinking, like, um, as managing, you know, a small team, I'm always thinking, give me your problems and I'm <laughs> going to solve them. I just don't... I'm just thinking, throw me the problems and, <laughs> you know, I'm here to find a solution and... and you know move forward so i think that's you've got to enjoy kind of solving the problems it's true it's part of it but um, most of the time managers don't know everything um and it is about knowing who is an expert in your team and surrounding yourself with people who know better than you do in the yes. different areas that are involved in your organization and knowing who to go and speak to and then trust them and trust their um, guidance um, that's going to support the manager's decision making. Yeah, and I think I also um, heard once this expression that in a way your team doesn't just work for you, you also work for your team because your ability to kind of inspire them um, is very important in how they can then perform, you know, moving forward. So I think that it's not just about 
Um, there are different styles of management, but I'm much more like a collaborative team approach than definitely not dictatorial <laughs> management. <laughs> you usually see it uh, reflecting in the performance of those teams. Um, leaders who are very authoritative, people just do things because they have to do it and they tend to do the, the minimal that they can. And in collaborative team, um, there is this willingness to try and find your place and to create a dynamic with everyone. And these teams tend to perform a lot better. Amazing. Yeah, I definitely agree. What got you into IT consulting in the first place? Oh, God, that's a wonder <laughs> because my entire family are artists. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my mum is an actress. So did you think about <laughs> becoming an artist or something in the arts? I did. I used to play semi-professional theatre when I was a teenager. Ooh. Yeah, my grandfather's theatre. Wow. Um, he, he owned or ran a theatre. Yeah, he did. So wow. he used to be an actor. He did part of his career in Rome, then Paris. God. Then he became... Um, commercial director of the Opera of Marseille for over a decade. Wow. And then he went on just creating his own little theatre and uh, a couple of the people that studied with him um, actually joined the uh, Comédie Française later on, so they did quite well as a career. Um, but yes, as a teenager, I was tempted and he... <laughs> and obviously your mother is an actress as well. She is as well. But my granddad sat me down and said, um, are you sure? <laughs> if you're really sure, I'll try and help you. But are you sure? <laughs> um, and then I, I just moved on. I, I decided to study um, English for a couple of years. Then I studied history of art. And then I couldn't find a job anywhere. And after a few months, I was fed up. And I moved to Dublin, <laughs> where work was. And I fell into IT by, by chance. Mm. Um, one of the housemates I was sharing a house with in Dublin came back one evening and said to me, my manager is hiring a business analyst in the IT department. You're quite geeky, so I think you would enjoy it. <laughs> and I just went for it. And that's how I started in IT. And later on, I decided to do a degree in computer sciences and just pursue the career. Yeah. And did you start in programming and... Uh, or did you go straight into consulting? The first couple of years for the master, um, it's quite general. And then you get to choose a specialization. And I went for IT management specifically. Sometimes I think I should have gone for programming, but that's fine. I, I still enjoyed it. And that led me to going into project management, program management. Um, and then what I've been doing now. Um, a lot of uh, situation recovery for organization when things go a bit pear-shaped. Um, and I, I can use my experience from all the places I've, uh, I've had assignments with um, and help them solve the issue. And how do you find, obviously, you're working with managers and the team. How do you find to get them kind of on side to progress with new things and put new frameworks into place? Do you find that difficult or challenging or are most people responsive? It depends. Sometimes there is resistance, which is normal. It's human. Um, this is where coaching skills come into yeah, play quite a lot. It, definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes it's due to uh, beliefs or values that people have or they are just scared to try something new. Um, it's about going step by step, but I usually don't go for drastic changes. I look at what's happening. Um, I try and speak with a lot of the people involved for the, the first couple of weeks and understand what the issues are or what the challenges are. 
Um, and then I'm going to usually pick two things that I'm going to focus on. And by doing those two things, you notice that it impacts everything else. And then you go with that and adapt um, and involve the different people together. Um, it's a lot about creating connections as well between people. There's a lot of silos, especially in big organizations. Um, they just don't talk to each other. So um, making people aware that um, they can just reach out and they can just go and speak with someone to solve an issue um, is quite a big part of what I do. It, it sounds like normal, but it doesn't happen that naturally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you work with a certain framework or model or do you kind of develop your own um, theories of doing? I started a long time ago with traditional methodology, um, what's called Prince, Waterfall, etc. Mm -hmm. I then um, went into something called Agile. Yeah. Um, and I then progressed to blending all of these. So when I start an assignment in, in the company, um, I, I start identifying what the challenges are. Um, I usually agree with the managers, the people I'm working with, or the team, what they consider as success. If we were to speak about the same thing in three months' time, what would make them say, yes, we won it, that's cool, that's much better than it was, or it's a success. Um, I keep this in mind. And then I try and find the blend that's going to work for that specific set of teams or um, the company. So it might be sometimes working with teams like infrastructure that are very waterfall and traditional in the way of looking at things because they don't have much change. They know exactly what hardware needs to be there in six months' time. Um, and they need to migrate that to a data center. And that's it. It's very little change um, in your horizon with these. But these teams need to then collaborate with software development teams that are based on product and vision and changes and uh, what customers want. And these guys usually go and use Agile because they need to be able to adapt quite fast and redirect quite fast. Um, and that's about gathering the right people together and then empowering them and then finding that blend of methodology that's going to work for them and for the infrastructure team. So it might be something that's very agile, but at the same time has a reporting layer that speaks to the managers and that speaks to the infrastructure team in terms of collaboration and coordination of what's going to happen. Mm. And then when you're kind of moving to executive and business mm -hmm. coaching, do you think that's just for managers and CEOs or is it also for individuals at different stages of their career and how can it help them to kind of progress and deal with the different situations? The difference between executive coaching um, and then professional coaching and business coaching, um, professional coaching and uh, business are very often based on the individual and focused on the individual career. It's one individual just the career and it might be with the company they are um, with during that time or it might be completely separate. They might decide to move on with their life and create a completely separate business or a side hustle um, and it's about supporting them in that journey and giving them the tools to do that. Um, when it comes to executive coaching, what we do and the way we work with managers is going to very often impact the entire organization 
because of the level in hierarchy that these people are um, at and, and what they do in, in the company. So that's, that's the main difference. So slightly different advice. Yeah. And one question is, I heard these two differing views that um, any employee could be coached to improve and get better. Or what do you think about other people saying, um, you you know, you should hire slowly and fire quickly? You know, <laughs> what do you think about, you know, letting people go? And is that mm-hmm. something also that, you know, you're coaching towards? Because those are difficult situations to have, you know, reorganisation, restructuring. They are very difficult situations. Um, so I, I do think that everybody should be a coach. I remember... I wasn't sure what that meant when I first started studying to become a coach. Um, and I did it with Barefoot Coaching. Um, they're quite well known on the, in the community. Mm-hmm. And the very first day, they said to us, everyone should be a coach. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but then how, like, everybody's going to want to do that. And then how do we do our job? You know, what makes it different? But I, now I do understand it. Everybody should be a coach. Everybody should be able to help each other. Um, it is about providing the tools to somebody who doesn't necessarily see them because you're in your own mind all the time. It's difficult to see outside of your filter. Having someone who comes to you and to make you aware of the thinking process and provide you with a set of tools for you to approach life and the challenges you set for yourself differently is invaluable. So yes, everybody should be a coach. I agree with that. (laughs) Totally. It's interesting as well, like even the best top CEOs have executive coaches and you would think that they're the people who in a way don't need it but in a way they need it the most at the same time they do um again it's very lonely at the yeah, top it's very lonely and yes yeah, somebody they can bounce ideas ways that is not necessarily a psychologist so you don't have to go super deep into like childhood trauma about it but you still you can still define the challenges that you want to achieve and then perhaps find the work-life balance. Um, it's, That's what we're yeah. all searching for. <laughs> yes, it's one of the main questions that I have. It's one of the main things usually that people want. work-life balance? It's like I have children and I have this and then I have work and I'm trying to get fit. And like... <laughs> Some people say to me anyway, you know, when will you achieve work-life balance? But then if you do enjoy your work, that can still be a part of your balance anyway. You know, uh, obviously, it's still important to have boundaries um, that that I think is important, especially in the modern world where we can be reached by email and all sorts of uh, mediums very, very quickly. And you can continue to be responsive. And someone also said to me, you know, if you're a person who responds quickly all the time, people will t- keep on re- taking um, that and they'll keep on expecting responses and sometimes if you're a person who pauses and then maybe takes a little bit longer for a response people will understand that you know and give you a bit more time it's true placing boundaries i remember um a really good friend of mine who's doing the same job as an it consultant started um uh, contracting many years before i started myself i used to be permanent in permanent position up to about 15 years ago and when I started um, freelancing he said to me make sure you educate people when you start somewhere and you spend the first few weeks just educating uh, place boundaries um, because otherwise you don't have the time to focus on what it is that you want to do and you don't bring much value because you're so disseminated across 
everybody's expectations and demands and it's yeah it becomes impossible uh, yeah i was hearing this thing about um in some investment banking they used to have these things where you have to reply in 15 minutes whatever happens and they would send messages can you get this to me asap or sooner and you're just thinking <laughs> how is that even possible but then that becomes one of the focus um and that becomes something you you have to integrate and you have to to deal with so it, it's an interesting point because yeah. in coaching you and then in, in a way if you're always responding how do you get time to actually work on the task in front of you it, you try and carve time I, I remember i did a contract with the bbc a long long time ago um and we we're working with about 30 development engineers and we had a few product teams and it was very hectic um, and there was a lot of questions all the time and i remember carving what looked like meetings um where i would spend time with the teams on the ground just to be able to achieve something with them, like rather than just having time to be with like, them. Yeah, yeah any time <laughs> you can. I guess because like also in the newsrooms and things, people are running around mm. and story will break, you know, it can be quite a hectic place. <laughs> so just changing, um, tell us about your cats. <laughs> oh, my cats. Um, so I have two cats. Um, one of them is called Neo. And he's a tiny uh, tabby cat. And the other one is a massive ginger cat called Louie, who's very clumsy. And I adore both of them. Um, Neo is actually, a, um, actually was a female, or we thought so, when I got him and when I adopted him. And I think he was just maybe two months old and I had to go away and I asked one of my best friends to look after him. She had two cats as well. And whilst I was away, she texts me and she goes, it seems that Naomi has grown a tiny pair of balls. <laughs> so I came back and Naomi became Neo. <laughs> there you see. <laughs> but gender doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Just, like Neo is gender fluid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us about um, fitness and how you know, you integrate that. I know that you were training for um, a marathon, if I'm right. Um, yes. So I, I was in the south of France last week in Marseille and I ran the half marathon called Marseille Cassis. Um, I used to be quite active uh, growing up anyway. I used to play volleyball. In my 20s, I practiced Aikido, martial arts quite a lot. I loved it. And then I moved to London and I started running. Um, then I had health issues and I had to stop for a while. And then I started running again a little bit and then the pandemic happened. And um, as a woman, perimenopause happened <laughs> and the two of them are put on a lot of weight. Um, and then I decided to stop being lazy a little bit. And in the meantime, I started an HRT treatment as well. And about a year and a half ago, I started running again. It seems good to have a challenge and uh, growing up in Marseille I remembered seeing runners doing the Marseille Cassis so I decided to go for this one I didn't really realize what I did to myself when I made that decision start of the year um, the first 10 kilometers are pure elevation gain 
And last week, it felt like my lungs were going to implode <laughs> towards the end of the And it's in the heat, right, as well. And it is was it quite right. hilly or is it a flat? Mm, very hilly. That's what I thought. Um, very hilly. So you go up and up and up and up. Um, and then at uh, kilometre 10, 11, you start going down on the other side. <laughs> well, at least you come down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and at least you made it through the half marathon. I made it. I have the little like middle. I'm, I'm very proud of it's it. Incredible. Of myself. And it's very motivating to keep running as well. And um, I've already registered for a couple more 10Ks and another half marathon. And I, I want to do this one again. I want to do a better time. Um, so you did touch a little bit on, um, you know, hormonal changes and how do you cope with that? And what advice would you give to, you know, other women <laughs> how to deal, oh deal with these, these um, changes? I actually asked my mum why she didn't give me what she had because she didn't even notice going through menopause. She was just like a breathe. So it does differ. That's the thing, isn't it? Everybody's experience does differ. It's different. So yeah, you can't really tell. Um, I didn't cope very well with it at first. I felt like I was going crazy, like I wasn't myself anymore. I had absolutely no energy, uh, brain fog all the time. Um, I was questioning myself all the time. Um, yeah, it was just really, really hard. Um, the advice I would give is to just talk about it a lot. There's uh, still um, taboo around it. Mm. Um, and I've noticed that it's better to be open, um, including at work sometimes. Yeah, Even in absolutely. IT, where there are a lot of, uh, of Well, this is a good men. thing. It's opening it up, you know, and it opening is. subjects that are not normally talked about. Yeah, it can, it can be taken as a joke sometimes, but it allows you to pass the message anyway. Mm. Um, and it's educative as well. And like I remember one of the contracts I had just before I started HRT. Um, I was with HMRC, with the government, for a year and a bit on a contract. And my team were only men. Um, and I wasn't like shouting about it, but I was just open about what was going on. And I remember one day during a meeting, I had a massive hot flush. Like I became red <laughs> from here to the top. And one of the uh, engineer very kindly just stood up, went into the AC unit, brought it right next to me and put it on oh, and went back to sit. And that was really nice. That was really lovely. Exactly. See, <laughs> there are caring people and also like... They're outside of the computer, you know, <laughs> the human things. <laughs> That's the interesting thing because, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI now. And um, my view is whatever happens, you know, the people are still important. And if you um, talk to people who basically invest in companies and venture capitalists, they always say we buy into the person you know, the founders are important and, uh, you know, these great founders can really change companies completely. So in a way, it's the people behind the ideas, you know, that are so important. So that's why I'm a great believer in, you know, humanity. <laughs> I am as well. I'm also, um, at the moment, I don't think there's much AI around. I think it's a lot of... Uh, um, language yeah language model. based models exactly. yes um, whereas in ai and the the people mix the two terms together and there is use for ai but i also believe that it's going to be quite a long time before they can truly take over what humans are able to do um 
there's something about being self-conscious and and having a gut feeling and understanding that movement is perhaps not only concretely on the map, but it's about where you're going as well and how that's going to impact. Yeah. yeah. Um, and AI can't do that. I, I think that's what people that. don't realize, like a large language-based model, that's not necessarily consciousness, you know. No, it's it looks like it. Exactly. It looks magic sometimes, but it's still somebody in the background that's been coding and adding lots of data yeah. or allowing machines to put lots of data Using responses together. and putting them together. Yeah. And have you been involved in implementing some of these? I'm sure you get asked about it all the time. Um, I was, but I can't really talk about it because <laughs> that was with the government. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very interesting, yeah. very interesting um, subject. Um, but I think a lot of people say that actually it can be used to kind of supplement things. So, if you're designing something or if you're kind of drafting uh, an article, you can use these um, language-based models to kind of uh, produce a template or something, but that's only input into your overall, you know, thing that you crafted. And the creativity you still need. And also, like I gave you to try, and um, I tried uh, GPT-4, GPT-4. Um, it's fun. I've I've used it to generate texts, and it does. After a while, it does take the style that you're using a little it bit. It kind of learns. Yeah, yeah, but it's never quite the same. What I found myself doing was to where I struggled to start writing about something. Um, using ChatGPT is great because it just blasts something straight away for you. That's very structured. And then going through that and giving it your mark yeah, and changing it a little bit. That's very useful. Yeah. So um, tell us about um, nutrition and how do you approach that for yourself? Obviously, we talked about fitness a little bit. What about the nutrition side of things? Nutrition was a very um, conflicting point when I went to see my GP about the, the menopause because I had started to put on a lot of weight and I hadn't changed my diet and the, I kept a Mediterranean diet ever since I grew up ever moving to London um, when I was in Dublin for, for over 10 years I kept a very close to a Mediterranean diet and um, it's always I always find it really good mm-hmm. but I also allow myself to have what I want to have um, and my weight has always been okay and suddenly, without changing anything, I started putting on weight. And I, when I went to my GP the first few times, I used to say to her, I'm putting on weight. And she used to come back to me with, oh, you need to stop eating um, beans or bread or like very specific English foods. And I was like, I'm not really, that's not really in my diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> You're not eating any of those things. Yes, yeah, so very rarely. Um, so um, I eat a lot of, I like fish, I like vegetables. Yeah, obviously that um, comes drinks, from the French yeah. and the Italian yeah. and the sunshine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, talk to us about travel. I know that you've travelled to quite a few places and we even travelled together before. Yes. Um, you know, where, what places do you like to travel um, other than the Mediterranean. I went to Japan in September for the second time. Um, I went with a friend of mine. It was amazing. I absolutely adore Japan. Um, we did Japan and we did Jeju Island, mm. that is South Korea. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely amazing. 
I think the the more different the culture, the better. Yeah,、um, it really it, shocks you、yes. into something different. <laughs> yes, and Japan is good for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't really believe that. You know, we're all living on one planet, but it's such a different experience. Their daily experience, yeah, but、and、it's I, great as well. It's、yeah. exactly, and I think there's.、Uh, Is it twenty-eight million or thirty-eight million people in Tokyo? It's something insane. Thirty-four million. Thirty-four million. That's yeah. <laughs> It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, like we think London is busy, but London feels like a very quiet town. Coming back from Tokyo, I also stayed because I know you stayed in Shinjuku, and I stayed、yes. there as well. And Shinjuku Station is the, I think, one of the busiest in the、It、world. It is insane. People get lost in there;、mm-hmm, they can't find their way out. I almost had a panic attack. I had to stop in the middle of Shinjuku Station. <laughs> they have like、uh, different levels and. Two hundred exits, two <laughs> hundred plus exits that you can take, and we got lost with my friend Casey, and we stopped for a few minutes because I, I was looking at her and I could see she was really tense, and she's usually very organized and always in control, and she's amazing, and I'm okay, like I get by okay, and I was feeling really panicky, and I was looking at her, thinking she looks panicky as well and really tense. It's not. It's, We need to do something about this, and we looked at each other and we're like we're going to stop for a few minutes now, and we just stood there near Pella in the middle of Shinjuku Station, inside, going, "It's going to be okay. <laughs> we will make it out." <laughs> They have people just directing people around. They、know. do, but we went to a guy、um, that. That was his job, and he has he had like a, a set of little maps around his neck, and we asked him. We said, "Well, we'll need to." Go here. We have no idea where we are. Please help. <laughs> and he had to first of all look at all the little maps, and then he said something. And then we followed him, and he went to one of his colleague, and he asked the colleague, and the colleague went to someone, another colleague, and that other colleague was able to help. And was like, if if they have to do this to give you the right information, it is complicated. <laughs> Maybe we get used to it after a while, but yeah, it's a.、Uh... It's a maze. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's really interesting. Is there balance between futurism and also like that traditional, traditional you know, with the temples and the geisha、yeah. and that kind of thing, and then these, the manga and the buildings, and the, it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's such a mix.、Um, so in Tokyo, in two days, I went to、um, like a Japanese style garden. Um, and it was very peaceful. It was amazing. I visited the temple. I went to a cat cafe, which was really cool as well. I cheated on my cats. I'm hiding this from them.、Um, and then I went to a bar where you had little robots coming to serve you.、Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, the, it's a bit of everything. It's a bit of everything. It's really cool. And the cat cafe had this entire wall of mangas,、um, yeah, that you could choose from and, and read. Yeah, I think that's so. Like, it's so colourful,、mm. you know. So, how do you think that your journey and your personal story and message can kind of inspire others and help them going through similar situations, either in a you know business and executive sense, and also in a personal sense? I believe the personal journey guides a lot of what's happening,、um, both personally, but also professionally. Um, I'm lucky. I've had quite a lot of experiences throughout my life.、Um, 
I lived in two different countries, Ireland and then the UK. And I found myself in quite extreme situations. Um, when I moved to Dublin, um, I broke up with the, the person I was with in France. Um, it wasn't going very well anyway. But I arrived in Dublin and I was supposed to stay the first months whilst I was starting work with uh, his friend. And when he knew that uh, we had broken up, he threw me out. So <laughs> I found myself homeless for a couple of days. Oh, my gosh. Um, I was married in Dublin to a man who was from Manchester. I got divorced. And when I got divorced, I came out. Um, I decided to convert to Buddhism. Um, and I decided to move to London. <laughs> and colorful, I made that decision life. at the start of 2010. I remember it was January. I was just back from Japan. It was the first time I had been. And I made that decision to myself. And I thought by September, I wanted to be in London. And I wanted to live near Notting Hill because that was just famous. Yeah, and yeah. yeah that's what I knew. Um, and I want to work in the city. And I went with that. And I kept working and I started looking for jobs from Dublin and I didn't have much chance, like no one was coming back to me. Um, and then in June, I was fed up and I thought, you know what, I'm going to hand over my resignation. What happened will happen, we'll see. I'm just going to keep persevering and, um, and we'll see. Um, I ended over my resignation. I had been with the same company, car rental company, for 11 years. Um, I saw a role in London that was in the city for a, a data company um, that was doing reporting. And I remember looking at it and I was at work on a break and a, a friend of mine said to me, just apply. You never know. I was like, yeah, but it's quite a senior role and I'm not sure. Like, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. And she went, just go for it and you'll see. And I applied and then I forgot about it because I applied to so many things. In July, my best friend who was in France asked me to help her um, going to Chicago and looking after uh, kids. She's an English teacher, um, looking after kids with her. So I spent a month in Chicago. And whilst I was there, that company contacted me um, and said, well, would you like to interview? We like your CV. Um, are you interested? And I interviewed at my first interview in Chicago, and I remember I had only holiday clothes on, and I had to borrow like a suit that was way too big for me at the time from the people we were staying with. And I did my first interview, and then I did the second interview, and um, a week before we were due to come back, I was supposed to go to Marseille first and back to Dublin. They said to me, you've made it through, it's you and two other candidates. Um, we'd like to see you in person, but we'd like you to prepare something for this. Um, and I, I was quite, like, I couldn't believe it. And I was with my friend, I was in Chicago, my mind was there. And I waited until the last minute to prepare that thing. So I found myself buying a USB uh, port and doing the preparation on the flight back, the overnight flight back to Marseille for, for that thing, for the last interview. I arrived in Marseille. I had changed my flights at the last minute to go via London and then Dublin, flew to London, when I arrived in London, I was so jet-lagged. <laughs> and I think it played a part because I was so tired. I was actually relaxed <laughs> for, oh, the, for the interview. And I, I gave my presentation, went back to London. August arrived. And I was thinking to myself, God, I have nowhere to live in London. I don't know where, where to go. I gave my resignation and I told the people I'm, I'm sharing the house with since I was divorced uh, that's it. I was going to find somebody for the room I had. So end of August, I'm 
there's nothing for me here and I have nothing in London. And I was starting to be really stressed. I think you're very brave. <laughs> a bit crazy as well, I think. <laughs> but anyway, and I remember me, Augusta, thought to myself, I'm just letting go. That's it. Like I've done everything I could. We'll see. And on the third week, I had, we went to the pub with my friends to celebrate me going as a living do. Um, as I was in a pub, the company called me and said, we're offering you the job. Can you start on the 6th of September? I remember the date. And I was over the moon. I was super happy. So I became celebrating as well. <laughs> I got quite drunk that day. And when I came back, I was drunk, but I still, I went on Facebook. Um, and as I went on Facebook, the minute I locked down, a friend from, a friend I had made from London who had been on holiday in Dublin, posted on Facebook, I'm going away for three months and subletting my room uh, with agreement from the landlord. And uh, it's in Westbourne Grove, which is very yeah, close to Notting Hill. Contact me or DM me <laughs> if you're interested. And I DM her straight away and then said I would call her back the next day. So it all kind of unraveled and happened in like one night at the very limit of me moving to London with absolutely nothing. <laughs> so um, you did yeah. live near Notting Hill and you did work in the city as well. And I did. So I ended up working in the city and living close to Notting Hill. Amazing. There you really go. Cool, yeah. <laughs> this is like manifesting. It is. And then it comes. And that was a good lesson. That was, and it motivated me to then, when I wanted to do freelance, just go for it and jump and see what would happen. Um, and then motivated me again every time I wanted to make important changes in my life to just try and go for it 100%. And then if I felt it was still blocked at some point, just let go a little bit and wait and trust. Yeah. Trust that things, something trust is going to happen. Yeah. Universe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, what are your plans for the future? I know that's a difficult question, but you know, oh. what are your plans for the future? Do you kind of take things day by day or are you a big planner? I don't know, like finishing going through menopause and adopting yet more cats. <laughs> um, <laughs> keeping you as my dentist. Yes, good. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit like being back in a dentist chair. I'm quite relaxed. It's nice. I trust oh, you. Hopefully you're not nervous. Exactly. <laughs> That's what people say. They say, I'm scared of this. I'm said to him, you cannot be scared of me. I'm just... The gentleman is the nicest person, hopefully. The only dentist I trust on the planet. <laughs> but I think that is an important thing, is it's trust, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. Um, my plans are, I'm, I used to do coaching and IT together a lot, and I've made the decision to separate the two and to offer coaching as a, very, um, as a service of its own. I think it deserves to absolutely. be that. Mm, and I wanted to keep freelancing. I really enjoy it. And yeah, I'll see. I'll see where that leads me at first. How how we go with this? But I don't. I like having several things in my life and just balancing them out. So um, I see myself potentially growing quite old, and then hopefully, and then maybe becoming a meditation teacher, but still keeping some sort of activity that's going to involve helping people or bringing some sort of value. I think that's what brings the real joy when you really help people and notice the changes, then that's so rewarding. It is. It's the rewarding side of it. That's the best. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that's a very human, human thing. Yes, absolutely. But for, for me also, it gives me a structure to go with because I'm quite introvert. 
And I find it's quite hard to be social in big groups. Um, having coaching as a set of skills allows me to approach um, being with people mm. and interacting with people in a safe way <laughs> because yeah. I'm so focused on bringing something and like making sure that I do my job, that I end up building relationship. But it's okay, I'm safe. Like for an introvert person, it's perfect. And <laughs> yeah. IT is really good if you're introvert as well. <laughs> well, that's another interesting thing um, with the introvert and extrovert is people might think, oh, you know, you have to be an extrovert to be successful. But that's not necessarily at all true. It's mm. we need both different types of personalities, you know, and um, they always say, you know, the introvert is busy doing work, you know, <laughs> and they're busy getting on with things and getting things done. So I think it's that really important um, balance of having all types of people together that makes yeah, things so interesting. I agree, yes. Um, also, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, an introvert never interacts with anyone. Um, it's probably in the way they interact or we interact. My... Um, my friendships are very much one-to-one. -one. So I'm going to go and spend some time with one friend, then with the other, then with the other, maximum two friends. A friend of mine is very extrovert and she actually recharges if she has 20 people around her. So every time she wants to catch up with me, I dread it because I know it's going it's to be, be me and 15 <laughs> other friends <laughs> and it's draining me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. much better like one to one. But it, friends do occupy a very important in my, um, place in my life as well. Absolutely. Um, and people, it's just even at work, I can see the way I go about things is very much one to one. It's nice as well. It has its uh, advantage because you, you tend to create um, really good connection because you get to know the person a bit more. Hmm. There's a bit more space and mind space. And that's interact. why we're friends as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me, thank you. I'm Julie. All of Julie's details will be in the show notes and we can put something about executive coaching in there as well. And thank you guys for listening. If you liked today's show, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It was presented by me, Dr. Richard Marks. For more about me, I'm on at Dr. Underscore Richard Double Underscore or visit my website www.drrichardlondon.com. This is a Pod People production and the music is by Delhi Music and we will see you next time. Music